Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, one day, a little girl, maybe five or six years old, um, she went to her mother and she asked her a question. Mom, what is God like? Her mother hesitated in the face of such a grand question. And then after stumbling for a response and tripping over her words, she finally said, well, I'm not really sure. Go ask your father. So the little girl went to her father and asked the same question. Dad, what is God like? Her father got nervous. He hemmed and hawed and didn't provide any real substantive answer. Well, a couple of days later, the little girl was at school, and her parents went inside her bedroom, and they came across a piece of paper uh, with a note written on it. Uh, This is what the note said. Maybe she was a little bit older than five or six, but she had written down a note, and this is what it said. I went to my mother and asked the question, what is God like? My mom did not know. To my father, and I asked the question, what is God like? My father did not know. You would think if I lived as long as my mother and father, I would actually know a thing or two about God. Well, what is God like? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? That's the question, if we're honest, that keeps us awake at night. Uh, Years ago, J.B. Phillips, who was an Anglican pastor, he wrote this book entitled, Your God is Too Small. Isn't that a great name for a book? Your God is Too Small. Well, the premise of the book involved challenging conceptions that we humans so often hold about God. For example, some of us are convinced that God is a mean judge trying to catch us in the act, and therefore we spend our lives trying to run away from God or follow a bunch of demanding, strict, joy-stealing rules. Some people believe that God is a heavenly accountant who tallies up good deeds and bad deeds. And then at the end of our lives, what is Almighty God going to do? Well, God is going to punish us or God's going to reward us depending on which deeds are higher. You better hope that the good deeds are higher than the bad deeds. Still, other people believe that God exists, that there is a God, but this God is not a personal God, they say. This God is not a benevolent God. He's not a relational God. He's not a caring God, an involved God. No, they say God is more like a cosmic being who made the universe and then stepped back to let everything run its course. What is God like? That's the important question. That's the central question. And folks, that's the question that Jesus takes up in the Scripture passage that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, We are thick deep in a sermon series here at Asbury entitled Stories Jesus Told, in which we're taking a closer look at some of the parables. Uh, Parables are basically short stories, and Jesus told these short stories in the first three Gospels of the New Testament. What are the first three Gospels of the New Testament? The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke. Well, he told these short stories in the first three Gospels to illustrate to us 
profound spiritual truths, profound spiritual teaching. And in the scripture passage from Luke 15 that we're going to look at, Jesus actually gives us two parables. Well, really, he gives us three parables, and we'll look at the third parable next week. But he gives us two parables in the beginning part of Luke 15 that beautifully define for us who God is and what God is like. So with this being said, check out with me these words from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Some people have referred to this passage as the heart of the gospel because these stories take us into the very heart of God. It says this, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Don't you love that phrase, notorious sinners? Do we have any notorious sinners here at Asbury? You don't have to say me, me, me. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Somebody say, ooh. So Jesus told them the story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Will he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman, this is the second story he gives, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin in the same way. There is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What is God like? Well, there are a few places in the Bible that answer this question in a clearer and more direct way, more precise way than in these parables, these stories that Jesus gives to us. You see, folks, when Jesus came among us 2,000 years ago, there were all kinds of people. There were plenty of people who saw the way that Jesus acted, and they heard the things that Jesus said, and their conclusion was, God's not like that. That's not who God is. We see that very thing going on here in this text from Luke 15. Here in Luke 15, and Luke is 24 chapters long, so we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 15. Well, here in Luke 15, we meet Jesus. We encounter Jesus. And up until this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been pretty active. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been performing miracles. He's been casting out demons. And for all of his trouble and all of his efforts, all Jesus has gotten is a bunch of critics. These religious leaders... You know, it's interesting, the religious leaders were not a monolithic group back then. They actually had a lot of disagreements. They had a lot of internal struggles. There was plenty that they disagreed about, and yet for the most part, they all seemed to agree on this. Jesus is not the long-awaited one of God. He is not God's promised Messiah. Do you know why? Because of the kind of people that he associates with. Listen again 
to what it says here at the beginning part of this chapter. Remember, Jesus hardly ever told parables randomly, as we've said many times in this sermon series. Well, these two verses set the context for the stories that Jesus gives. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. He had the audacity to eat with them, to share fellowship with them. Folks, this is the most persistent and major charge against Jesus and the Gospels, the fact that he associates with sinners. It's the principal reason why so many people, despite all of Jesus' wisdom, despite all of the miracles, all the incredible things that he did, did not believe him to be the Messiah, did not believe him to be of God. Why, if Jesus were the real Messiah, they argued, you know what he would do? He would come and he would gather up all the nice people, all the religious people, all the holy people like us. This man's not the Messiah. He's welcoming these sinners. And you know what else? He's partying with them. He's hanging out with them. When I was growing up, my mom would often say this to me. Christopher, I mentioned last week, she always called me Christopher. Christopher, you are who you hang out with. Anybody here have a mom or a dad who said that? Anybody say that to their kids? You are who you hang out with. Therefore, choose your friends what? Carefully, wisely. Well, that's not too far off from what's going on here. These religious leaders have come to the conclusion Jesus cannot be as he's claimed of God because of the people that he hangs out with, the friends that he has. God does not associate with such scum, they more or less say. How can this man be of God? Well, in response, what does Jesus do? He gives a long theological lecture, right? So what he does. He tells some stories. Which of you men, he begins, let's say you have 100 sheep. Now, remember, this is a culture that was very familiar with shepherding. Let's say you have 100 sheep. One of those sheep goes missing. Will you not, he poses the question to them, will you not leave the 99 other sheep by themselves in the wilderness with no one to look after them and then go out and beat the bushes and search for that lost sheep. And when you have found that lost sheep, will you not pick that animal up and put it on your shoulders joyfully and then come back home and say to all of your friends and all of your neighbors, let's party, let's celebrate. I have found my missing sheep. To which your friends and relatives will undoubtedly say, well, that's really wonderful. But look, you fool, you lost like 65 more sheep while you were out beating the bushes and search for that one sheep. Which of you will not do that? Or you women. Let's say you have 10 coins. One goes missing. Well, will you not take all your furniture and push it out into the yard? Take all the heavy appliances, the stove, the fridge, put those out into the porch. Pull up all of your rugs and search and search and search and search until you find that little coin and when you found that little coin, will you not run outside and say to everybody that you know, let's have a party? I found my dime. Which of you will not do that? 
realistically, none of us would do the things that Jesus describes here. No rational person would behave in such a reckless, irresponsible way. No sane person, some of you are business people, no sane person would run a business this way. Economically, it doesn't make sense. Exactly. It's not supposed to. These are not stories about you. These are not stories about me. These are not stories about how we behave. These are stories about God and how God behaves. Jesus is answering the question, what is God like? You know, for this very reason, I've always found it kind of funny that when you open up your Bible, and maybe you have a Bible with you, but when you open up your Bible to this passage, Luke 15, and I don't care what translation you use, if you use the NIV, the New International Version, which is this translation, or if you use the NLT, the New Living Translation, which is the translation that I read from a moment ago, or maybe you read the King James Version or the New Revised Standard Version, for the most part, here's what you're going to discover when you open up your Bible to these stories. You're going to discover that translators, when translating this text from Greek into English and trying to make it easy for us to read the text and understand the text, They've done something, and that is they have placed, in my conviction, misleading titles in front of both of these stories, improperly calling them the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Remember, these titles are not original to the stories. Jesus didn't give these stories these titles. These titles have all been put there by these translators. Now, why are they misleading? Why are they inappropriate? Because in reading both of these stories, we discover that they don't start with the sheep and the coin. Actually, the sheep and the coin do very little in these stories. I mean, come on, even the coin, it's inanimate. It doesn't move around. At best, the sheep and the coin play a supporting role. Who do these stories begin with? The shepherd, or the man, and the woman. I have a up here on the screen, a graphic from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Anybody ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Bueller, Bueller. Anybody seen this movie? Yeah, it came out back in 1986. It's a classic. Well, it'd be like us calling this movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off Sloan's Day Off. Remember Sloan, the girlfriend of Ferris Bueller? Or Cameron's Day Off. Cameron was the best friend of Ferris Bueller. Are Sloan and Cameron in the movie? Yeah, they're in the movie. Is the movie primarily about them? Who's the movie primarily about? Ferris Bueller. And it's about the day off that he wanted from school. All the things that he initiated in order to get that day off from school. Well, in a similar sense, these stories in Luke 15, they render to us a personality. A main agent. A primary actor. So that I think better and more faithful titles would be the parable of the searching shepherd and the parable of the seeking woman. These are stories about God and what God is like. Will Willimon, who teaches at Duke University, a retired United Methodist bishop, he served in the North Alabama Conference of the United Methodist Church. He puts it like this in a book that he wrote some years ago. Uh, this is what he says. Most of us have been conditioned to listen to Scripture 
anthropologically, now that's really fancy, isn't it? Anthropologically. What he basically means is we have been conditioned to listen to Scripture with human beings in mind, rather than theologically. Theology is the study of God. In other words, with God in mind, asking, how is this story about me? Isn't that always the question we bring to the Bible? What is, how does this story teach me about me? How does this story teach me more about myself? Therefore, Willimon goes on to say, we need a general interpretive principle for reading the Bible. Scripture always and everywhere speaks primarily about who? God. And only secondarily. And then only derivatively. About us. You see, what Jesus is doing through both of these stories, he is painting a vastly different portrait of God than what the religious leaders have come up with. For these religious leaders, God is high, God is aloof, God is distant, God is holy, God is way too holy, way too good to associate with sinful, broken people with messed up lives. Jesus gives a resounding, no, that's not who God is. God is the searching shepherd. God is the seeking woman. It's not that God excuses sin or looks over sin, no, but God goes after sinners. That's who God is, a God who searches and seeks for the lost. It's ironic that Jesus' critics say, this man welcomes sinners, and in response, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus tells two stories, not about people welcoming things. I mean, the shepherd doesn't say, well, if that sheep ever makes its way back into the fold, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to welcome it back. Or the woman, she doesn't say, if I ever stumble upon that coin again, I'm going to welcome it into my purse. No, the shepherd and the woman drop everything. They go out of their way to find what's lost. And here's what's most special. Here's what's most profound. Are you listening? They do not give up. They don't give up. Years ago, I heard a sermon that I've never forgotten. Do you forget the sermons that you hear? <laughs> Hopefully not. Not the ones you hear here at Asbury, right? But I heard a sermon years ago. I've never forgotten this sermon. The sermon was entitled, The Most Comforting Word of the Bible. What is the most comforting word of the Bible? What is the most encouraging word? hope-filled word in all of Scripture. Well, the preacher was actually preaching from this text in Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. It shows up in each one of these parables. You know what it is? Until. U-N-T-I-L. Until. Until he finds it, or until she finds it. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus does not say, well, the shepherd went out and he searched for a reasonable period of time, five or six hours. And then after looking for a pretty long time, he turned to his shepherd friends and he said to himself, you know what, I've been looking for a pretty long time and it's been a really long day. I haven't had any food to eat. I'm feeling kind of cranky. My back is hurting. My family has dinner waiting for me at home. You know, I still got 99 more sheep. And you know what? One missing sheep, 99 sheep that are here, all things considered, it's been a pretty good day. I gave it my best shot. No, the shepherd keeps on looking, he keeps on seeking, and he doesn't give up. 
That's the kind of God we have, Jesus says. We have a God who will not call off the search. We have a God who will not suspend the search until he has gathered all of us, each and every one of us, into the fold. Andrew Clavin is a popular writer. Maybe you've heard his name before. Andrew Clavin uh, grew up in a secular household. He was not raised with any kind of religious faith. And for the longest time, he considered himself a philosophical agnostic. Philosophical agnostic. And what that basically meant is that he lived his life as if God did not exist. And yet the God of Jesus did not stop searching for Andrew Clavin. This is what he shares. Jesus never appeared to me while I lay drunk in the gutter. And yet looking back on my life, I see that Christ was beckoning to me at every turn. When I was a child, he was there and the kindness of a Christian babysitter and the magic of a Christmas Eve spent at her house. When I was a troubled young man contemplating suicide, he was in the voice of a Christian baseball player who gave a radio interview that inspired me to go on. And always, he was in the day-to-day miracle of my marriage, a lifelong romance that taught me the reality of love and slowly led me to contemplate the greater love that was its source and inspiration. Because of God's relentless pursuit, Andrew Clavin, this child of God, he eventually opened his eyes to the truth of God's deep love for him and Jesus. He became a Christian. Listen, I know that there are people listening to me right now here in the sanctuary, online, maybe later in the week. There is somebody in your life that you care deeply about. Maybe a spouse. Maybe a child. Maybe a sibling. Maybe a close friend who was in a Christ follower. And you deeply want that person to be. Don't be discouraged. God has not stopped the search. God continues to look for them. Hold on to that word until. U-N-T-I-L, until. There's another word that often goes unnoticed in these parables. A really important word that further answers the question of what God is like. It's found in the second parable, uh, the parable of the seeking woman. Listen again to what it says here in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Let's say this together. Won't she light a lamp? Won't she light a lamp? Folks, as modern people, we have become desensitized to the significance of the woman's action. I mean, come on, think about this. How hard is it for us in the year 2023 to light a lamp? Has it ever been difficult for you to light a lamp? Probably not, unless you didn't have power. I mean, all we got to do is walk into a room, flip up a switch, that's it, no big deal. You don't even think about it. In fact, it is so easy for us to light lamps that we often forget to do what? Say it louder. Turn them off. And so sometimes you go into a public place and there'll be a sign that will say, turn off the light. When you leave this room, help us save money. Help us not to waste electricity. Or maybe you had a mom or a dad who would say to you, hey, turn off that light if you're not in the room. Electricity doesn't grow on trees. Did your parents ever say that? I find myself becoming more and more like my father every day. I say that very thing in our home. 
But in the ancient world, when Jesus was telling this parable, lighting a lamp wasn't a simple task, nor was it necessarily cheap. It required the use of what? Oil. And that day, oil was a costly commodity. It cost this woman resources. It cost this woman money to light that lamp. But do you know what? It didn't seem to matter. That coin was worth it. You know what that tells us? You know what that teaches us? It teaches us that all of us are worth it to God. Amen? That all of us matter to God. That there is no measure, there is no means to which the God of the universe will not go to be in a relationship with you. That God's going to behave recklessly, extravagantly, some might even say irresponsibly and foolishly just to be with you. The religious leaders could not conceive of God this way. There are people today who can't conceive of God this way. But according to Jesus, this is who God is. This is who God has always been. This is who God is right now. This is who God will always be. And finally, not only does Jesus describe God this way, as one who resourcefully goes after sinners, but Jesus also shows us this truth about God. He shows us this truth about God through his birth, through his life, through his witness, through his death and his resurrection, Jesus shows us a God who when we humans fell away into sin and into darkness and into the brokenness of our own volition, did not sit idly by. He did not sit up in heaven and say, well, to hell with those human beings, I'm done with them, get rid of them. No, he came and he pursued us. He pursued us all the way to Bethlehem and Jerusalem. In other words, all the way to the manger and the cross and the empty tomb on Easter morning. Jesus still pursues sinners. He still pursues you. He still pursues me. And nothing brings him more joy and gladness than when he finally has us in his arms. Halloween is next month. I'll never forget about a scary experience we had on Halloween night two years ago. Not because of costumes, not because of decorations, but because of something far scarier that happened. At the beginning part of 2021, our family moved here to Maitland after I got appointed here to Asbury as your pastor. Well, we purchased a home later that year and we were going trick-or-treating in our neighborhood for the very first time. Lots of kids in the neighborhood. We have Hannah and Noah. At the time, they were three and a half years old. More mobile than they had ever been before. They could not wait to trick-or-treat. We were excited for them to trick-or-treat and to experience all the fun of that night. Pastor Will and his family were with us. We had another family friend who was with us and her family. And so the kids left our home and we noticed right away, these kids were not just walking or strolling from house to house. Folks, they were running from house to house to house. There was energy, there was excitement, there was enthusiasm and anticipation. And they were running as a pack. 
And pretty soon, uh, the, the, the street got filled with more kids, and so the pack got bigger, and the pack got bigger. But then some of these packs began to break off, and you had kids going in this direction, and kids going in this direction, and this direction, and this direction. It was hard to keep up with everybody. Before I knew it, we couldn't see Hannah. I started screaming, Hannah, Hannah, where are you? My heart was racing. It felt like it was going to fall out of my chest. My mouth was dry, scared. Well, Alicia, Pastor Will's wife, she stayed with Liam and uh, our family friend, she stayed with her kids. And Amanda, my wife, she stayed with Noah, her son. And I said to Pastor Will, okay, you go down that end of the street. I'll go down this one. So Will went down there and I went down here. And I'm going from pack to pack, all these kids and house to house. Finally, I saw Hannah. In her confusion, she had joined a different pack that was going in a different direction. She was crying. I was crying. I was crying more than she was. And I picked her up. I said, Hannah, Hannah, I am so grateful to have you in my arms. What I felt that night is not even a fraction of how the God of the universe feels and when he finally has us in his arms in relationship with him. Who is God? What is God like? God is a searching shepherd. God is a seeking woman. God is Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, who will not stop, who will not cease until all of us are in his arms. Thanks be to God for God's recklessness, for God's resourcefulness. Thanks be to God for God's extravagant love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that instead of allowing us to come up with our own definitions of you, you came and you showed us who you are in Jesus through what Jesus said, but also through what Jesus did how he acted, how he lived his life, how he came among us, and how he died and was raised to new life by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, thank you so much for your deep and abiding love for all of us. You yourself are love, and you created us in love for a relationship with you. God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would empower us as we seek to embody your relational pursuit to every person, thereby fulfilling the mission that you have given to us as a congregation, to know your love and to pass it on. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.